It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We're one week closer to Christmas, one week closer to the end of the year, and one week closer to coming back into session. Yeah, this is our last full week in the office. Next week, we're probably going to knock off around Wednesday or Thursday. The year seems to have drugged by in so many ways, but in other ways, it's just flown. That's like what they say about kids, like the days are long, but the years are short. So for the second week in a row, after the General Assembly has adjourned, we have had another very active week in North Carolina politics. As usual, on par for NC Poll, the rumors were flying, and it turned out some of those rumors were true. So Saturday night, I was talking to someone who is pretty high up in Democratic politics. We were just kind of spitballing, you know, who would be the various candidates out there running for attorney general. It's been heard that, uh, you know, we've talked about Senator Danny Britt running for attorney general. So the conversation turned to the Democratic side and the name Jeff Jackson came up. And I was like, Jeff Jackson for attorney general? And this person said, well, yeah, you know, that's that's who is being talked about. A few days later, we get a telephone call from someone over at the General Assembly saying telephone calls are being made to donors by Senator Jackson, telling his donors that he's going to drop out of the race. And then the news hits yesterday, last night, early evening, By the way, we're recording this podcast on Thursday, but the news was confirmed this morning in a video that Jeff Jackson is not running for the U.S. Senate. He is bowing out. He has endorsed his opponent, Sherry Beasley, and it looks as if Jeff Jackson is turning to this attorney general's race, which is not until 2024. Right. He did say that he wasn't going to rush into running for his Senate seat, which Representative Rachel Hunt has already filed to run in Jeff Jackson's Senate seat. So if you kind of take a few steps back, you might wonder what he would be doing next, especially because after he put out that video this morning about stepping out of the race, Our Twitter timelines have been full of praise for Jeff Jackson. What a class act. You're hearing all of these things. And so it's kind of elevating his name in a way that you would think he's taking a loss, but he's actually taking a win. Uh, He is certainly putting himself in the good graces of the Democratic Party, especially that base. The question remains, are we going to see a classic matchup? between Senator Danny Britt down in Robeson County and Senator Jeff Jackson down in Mecklenburg County. For those of you who kind of follow North Carolina politics, you're inside the building. These are two folks I would not call allies at all. Senator Britt does not miss a chance to talk about Jeff Jackson. But, you know, when I talk to legislators around, there's there's still some question marks. Will Senator Britt take this step you know he's got young kids he's down in robson county his his law practice that takes a lot of time he would have to leave that law practice 
this is a full-time job. Not that being in the Senate is not a full-time job, but this is officially a full-time job. If Senator Britt does not run, who do you think else could step into that Republican slot for attorney general? So we were talking about this a little bit. And someone who would be could be elevated very quickly, I think, throughout the party would be Representative Destin Hall, our current rules chairman in the House. He is a partner at his law firm as well, so he would have some of those same concerns stepping away from his law practice. But he has shot up in Republican circles. He's gained a lot of national attention from national Republican groups, and he's been listed as a rising star. So he would certainly be someone who could pose a great challenge to Senator Jackson. I believe that Senator Jackson will not be disbanding his Jeff Jackson for North Carolina. A curious name, by the way, for his campaign, Jeff Jackson for North Carolina. Part of me wonders if this was always in the works. This is not atypical for a candidate to run for an office. Get your name ID out there. He did his 100-county tour. But it was all designed maybe to run for another office. We saw this back in the 1990s when Mike Easley, Governor Mike Easley, he was then a district attorney. He ran for the U.S. Senate against Harvey Gantt. He pulled out, then ran for attorney general. There is a playbook here that has been done before. Mike Easley successfully did it ended up becoming governor. You have to wonder if this was all a part of Jeff Jackson's plan. And by the way, however you feel about Jeff Jackson, there's all sorts of opinions out there. There are. (laughs) I think everyone agrees. Even if Senator Britt was sitting right here with us, we would all agree he is a master at communications. He's not going to go away. That's for sure. So we expect to see some news on that. I would say fairly soon, because the more time that passes, the more people will forget your name. And then there were some other rumors that started circulating this week. There was a New York Times article that cited Governor Cooper talking about President Biden running for re-election in 2024 and mentioned that maybe Governor Cooper might want to run for president. So the article said if Biden does not run... There are some folks out there who are looking at Governor Roy Cooper stepping into that presidential role. Of course, I would presume he would have to take on Kamala Harris. That would be a tough road, at least in a Democratic primary. She is taking on water nationally across the board, but seems to remain very popular in Democratic circles. The governor responded on Tuesday that he seemed to be putting all of his weight behind President Biden, assured us that President Biden was running again. He thought President Biden would win again and kind of dispelled some of the rumors. But there are also... All at the same time that he, Governor Cooper, was being elevated within the Democratic Governors Association. He is the new chairman. Let's just say President Biden does not run in 2024 and Governor Cooper sees this opening. It does present some logistical problems here in North Carolina. Yeah, that's because every time Governor Cooper leaves, 
the acting governor is Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. So Governor Cooper would have to start camping out in Iowa sometime around the beginning of this coming year. Have to visit Iowa and New Hampshire. And every time he did that, that veto stamp, that bill signing pen, that ability to make executive orders would then transfer to Republican Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. I just don't see that playing out. All about timing, and the timing would not be good for Governor Cooper. Our Republican friends would really like to see this happen, though. Again, we're recording on Thursday, and yesterday, Senator Berger and Speaker Moore intervened in the Leandro case. So what does that mean? They became parties in the case, and their court filing says that Judge Lee's order challenges the state budget and the General Assembly's authority. And they quote, quote from their filing says the court's order seeks to direct state officials to pay money from the state treasury in a manner contrary to appropriations made in the state budget. In doing so, the order contravenes the doctrine of separation of powers reflected in Article 1, Section 6 of the state constitution. Now, how does that read to you? So I might be getting ahead of myself here, but we're coming back on January 3rd, the General Assembly is, and in their adjournment resolution, going back a couple weeks ago, they list out all of the items that they can take up. One of them was impeachment. Is this being set up for a possible impeachment and impeachment trial? It certainly reads in a way that could lead one to think so. What would that process look like? Well, if you close your eyes and think about impeachment at the federal level, it is similarly set up in North Carolina. So in North Carolina, you need a majority of the sitting legislators to vote to impeach. But you need a supermajority to convict. To convict. My understanding is if you impeach a judge, whether you convict them or not, that judge has to come off the case in which he or she is overseeing. So this might be an end around for the General Assembly to get Judge Lee off the case. It might be. This is going to be a fun January 3rd session. This may not include impeachment at all. This is pure speculation. Yeah, I might be getting ahead of myself, but, you know, we'll put it on our scorecard and see what happens. We also heard that week of January 3rd, we're going to hear the cases for the redistricting lawsuits start on the third and we think they'll conclude by the end of that week? I think so. Someone who has been involved in the redistricting process for the last 11 years is the senior policy advisor to Senator Berger, Brent Woodcox. He sat down with us this week and we had just a really expansive conversation about what he does both at the General Assembly and in local politics. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Our first legislative staffer as a guest on the podcast, welcome Brent Woodcox to the podcast. 
What an honor. I mean, it really is. I, I listen to y'all all the time, so I appreciate what y'all are trying to do with this. Thank you. To start us off, tell us about what is your job and how does that fit into the General Assembly? Well, technically my title is Senior Policy Counsel, which probably doesn't tell you very much about what I do day to day. Um, my area of expertise are redistricting, election law, unemployment, tax reform, some alcohol regulatory issues. You're just listing every subject. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people I don't do healthcare or education, and if it's not that, then I'm probably have my hand in it. Okay. But really what I do at the General Assembly is people come to Raleigh, they get elected. They may not necessarily be lawyers. They might not necessarily have any kind of policy background, but they have an idea. They know what they want to do. And so they say, here's my idea, and I tell them, well, this is how we make it into a law, and here's what the process is going to look like, here's what we need to talk to, here's how we can draft it, here's the stakeholders that are going to be involved, and here's how we're going to get the votes and talk to our own caucus and see if we can get any support across the aisle, and we turn that idea into a law, and that's basically my area of expertise. So how did you get involved in North Carolina politics, and specifically your job at the Senate? So when I came out of law school, I knew I wanted to get involved in public policy work and probably the political arena. Um, I knew somebody that gave me a connection to the North Carolina Republican Party and they offered me a job to, set, to be their communications director and they said, we need you to work for six months but then we'll give you a month off, you can study for the bar, you can take it in February. I okay. said, well that seems like a pretty good deal mm-hmm. and I need the money so I can keep paying rent, so I'll take the job. Took the job and that's where I met uh, Jim Blaine, uh, Phil Berger's former chief of staff who introduced me to Phil Berger. And, Burger, after a couple of years, asked me to come over and actually serve in the General Assembly when the Republicans were still in the minority. And so I provided some legal counsel to him when he had only a staff of three at the General Assembly. Then the Republicans took over in 2010. I was doing election day operations, which is basically like try, try to look at fraud detection. What, yeah. what, what a quaint town 2010 was. <laughs> <laughs> um, and after I was done with that, Phil Berger called me and said, do you want to come and work on redistricting? And I said, well, I don't know anything about redistricting. He said, that's okay. No other Republicans do either. Um, I still haven't really forgiven him for that, okay. um, but that's what I went to do. And then since then, I've kind of built some more policy areas that I'm an expert in. Um, and got a tax certificate from Georgetown Law, so I'm a state and local tax expert. And so that, that's kind of the stuff that I've been working on. It's been, it's been fun for the last 12 years working with the General Assembly. So when you were in law school, was it in law school where you decided, yeah, I'd like to go into the policy world? Was, was it ever a thought that you'd go work at a firm or be in a courtroom or anything like that? You know, I... I interview with some jobs thinking maybe criminal defense or prosecutor work would be something I was interested in because that was kind of other than constitutional law it was criminal law that I was most interested in I absolutely never thought I was going to be a tax lawyer I hated fed tax I was my lowest grade in law school but I learned that I liked policy work Um, and so I was always kind of drawn to politics I'd worked on uh, when I was transitioning between college and, and law school Worked on Bill Kobe for governor's 2004 campaign, just kind of as a glorified intern, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of caught the bug there and was like, I think that politics is a way that you can actually make real change that makes people's lives better if you do it the right way. And so it's something that I've always been drawn to. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your particular brand of republicanism. How did you become a Republican? Did you grow up in a conservative household? And how would you describe your views? No, it's funny because my dad was really into politics, and that's probably where I learned it from, but he's a Democrat. And, you know, a story that he always tells is, so you're a Democrat and your son's a Republican. And 
your son is a Steelers fan and you're a Cowboys fan. <laughs> your son spent a year at the University of Kentucky, but you graduated from Louisville Law School. Does your son hate you? <laughs> and I love my dad. He's, he's my hero. Um, but uh, it, it's just funny. Like, I grew up in a Democratic household, so maybe that probably does shape some of my politics. It's a little bit more looking for common ground and the center. Um, trying to elevate good public policy ahead of maybe just constant strife. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the real issues we're dealing with politics now is, like, if one side comes up with an idea, it's automatically bad instead mm -hmm. of looking at, well, maybe we don't like it exactly, but it's still an important topic. Like, for instance, the child tax credit and mm -hmm. what, whether or not, you know, it's something that should be refundable or there should be, it should be extended or it should be cash up front. Well, it, you know, we just passed a tax package that increased the child tax deduction in North Carolina. And I think that was a good pro-family move mm -hmm. that Republicans can support. But it's also something that's not really all that different than what the Democrats are trying to do in Washington. Uh, they just have a different way of going about it. And so... I think my brand of politics really is I grew up with a love of kind of Reagan conservatism mm -hmm. and I've probably over time become a little bit more practical and think that there's this inherent um, part of conservatism that really is kind of at loggerheads, which is one that you want to conserve what you already have, which is mostly the founding principles and our constitution and the things that, that, that have served this republic well for 200 years and make sure that the people's document that they've agreed to, the social contract of the Constitution, is something that we're all still living under. But also, that we want progress, both from an economic standpoint, from a social standpoint. I think conservatives are automatically driven toward what works best and what can make the next best, like the next click to a better America, a better republic. And so like, I think that's really what defines my politics. There's a lot to break down in what you just <laughs> said. So let's start with, you mentioned Louisville and Kentucky. Did you grow up in Kentucky or did you grow up in North Carolina? I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky and got here as quick as I could when I went to college at Carolina. But I did my first year at University of Kentucky, then went to Carolina and Chapel Hill for the next three years and then went to Duke Law. Yeah, you're like one of four people who went to Duke Law and stayed in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I miss all my friends from law school. They're back in New York and California. Right. Talk to us a little bit about your presence on Twitter. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, there, I probably got 20, 25,000 tweets out there now. Oh, wow. They're not all gold. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> um, I, I think that I, hopefully over time I've been a little bit more ends up in the drafts than okay. gets sent out now. Okay. Okay. Um, it's like, uh, I think Abraham Lincoln has the famous story. If he, if, when any time he was mad, he would write a letter, he'd put it in the desk and he wouldn't send it. And then the next day or the next week, if you still felt like you needed to send it, he would send it. But most of the time, he'd just leave it at the desk. Yeah. And that's the same thing. I kind of hope that I do better on Twitter because it's something either last January or the January before, probably both. I, didn't, I probably made a resolution to do better and then didn't. And then I re-upped it. So, um, but I think what I try to do is explain to people at least the perspective that I have and the facts as they are. And sometimes there's just misinformation out there. And sometimes it's just a mistake or ignorance. Sometimes it's willful. Um, and I try to correct the record when I can. It, sound, it seems like shouting into a void. I mean, it's not like conservatives are more popular on Twitter than, uh, than liberals. So... But hopefully I add something to the conversation. You know, a person that I really respect that worked for the General Assembly is Jerry Cohen. Mm -hmm. um, he's kind of mentored me when I first started working there. We're on different sides of the aisle, but he's always provided this perspective 
and he has a lot of respect and, and an obvious credibility. But he would be able to explain things in a way that everybody could kind of say, okay, we get the facts, even if we disagree on policy. And hopefully I'm ha- helping to add to that conversation. You have a perspective about what conservatism should be. And sometimes you will even criticize conservatives on Twitter. And let's be clear, it can be a toxic place, right? It's all sorts of voices are out there. But you seem to want to hold conservatism to a very positive standard. Can you talk a little bit about that? And does that ever get you crossways with folks who are in elected office? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've been blessed to be in a position where I've been able to be a voice of my own, Mm -hmm. an independent voice, while still working in this role. There's a certain privilege to that that I need to recognize Mm -hmm. um, because not every boss would allow you to do that. But Phil Berger's a man of great integrity Mm -hmm. um, who does allow me to do that. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes we can get crossways as a party Mm -hmm. in what we're being focused on and what we're talking about and sometimes even the way we're talking about Mm -hmm. it. Because there is a way to push controversial subjects that is appropriate or to express an opinion, even one that I disagree with, in a way that still is not purposefully to hurt people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, there's a way to get that wrong. And I think it serves all of us well to be able to have a civil conversation, even in a toxic place like Twitter mm-hmm. or even through the news media or Facebook or wherever we're, we're having this conversation because we do disagree about things and it's important that we disagree about things. That's why we have elections and we decide things mm-hmm. in elections. And, but in the interim, we need to be able to live together and actually govern a state and a country. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's important that as a party, we, we stand for things that are positive and that aren't always just attacking or negative of the other side. And that when we speak out and we have to be critical of the other side, we do so in a way that, it, that has integrity and that advances the ball in a way that actually gains followers and gains admirers and reaches out to people who might be in the middle and undecided to say, actually, we're making a strong argument and you should come over to our side. Mm-hmm. It's a game of addition. Right. I mean, politics is the art of the possible and more is possible when you add more to your team. Yeah. Yeah. You're young and Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Can you kind of talk about how you think the party is shifting for the young Republicans and what that looks like in the future, like what the brand of conservatism is for the future? Well, I, I, you know, I think that unfortunately right now we're in a place where a lot of young Republicans are getting way too radicalized and are way too online. And all of our conversations are about whatever people are arguing about on Twitter. But only 2% of America is on Twitter, and not many of those 2% are actually on the right side of the aisle. It seems silly that we're, we're modifying our message and our, our conversations among ourselves based on what's happening on a platform where we're not really represented. Um, and, you know, I see organizations like Turning Point USA, and I just think these are misinformation organizations. These are people getting together that have decided – they're the I don't believe you wing of the Republican Party. No matter what the subject is, if it's election fraud, if it's vaccines, whatever it is, it's I don't believe in common knowledge. I don't believe in whatever it is that most people believe. I define myself as contrarian against that. And it's, I don't think it's thoughtful contrarianism. There's room for thoughtful 
contrarianism to say, look, just because everybody believes something doesn't mean it's always right. Many times in our society over time, people have all agreed on a thing that's wrong and even evil sometimes. Mm-hmm. But there, what I think we're unfortunately running into is just a place where we're defining ourselves against what the mainstream is, and that is a path to permanent minority status. Mm-hmm. If you are going to reject mainstream, the middle-of-the-road politics altogether, then you are deciding that you're going to be in the minority. It was what Jim DeBent at one point said, I'd rather have 30 conservative Republicans who are you know, right on every issue than have 60 who um, can that are, will moderate. It's like, well, okay, then I guess you just don't want to matter. Right. So my, my plea really is like, what do we stand for? What is the future of America? And why aren't we talking more about what conservatism is, which is trying to conserve? What are we trying to conserve, and why are we trying to conserve it? Why are the founding principles and our Constitution worth defending? Because a lot of times, I think it's a, it's a right criticism that the other side forgets that we do have a document that defines our rights and responsibilities as citizens toward one another. We can't erase it. We can't change it without amendments. We can't get courts to do that. That breaks the social contract. If we're going to do the, make changes, we have to do it within the bounds of the Constitution, through the law, through the legislative process, and we have to do it in such a way that it gets enough support that it's democratically legitimate. You mentioned Republicans or conservatives have this viewpoint. Both parties seem to have this challenge, right? The Democrats were geniuses back in the Baz Knight-Rand era of defining themselves kind of against the Democrats' national brand Mm -hmm. and saying, we're different. We're a more pro-business. We're not quite as left on social issues. We're more of a moderation. We still, you know, they still kind of wanted to go in the same direction as the National Democrats. They just didn't want to go as fast. Right. And um, I think Republicanism has been somewhat like that in North Carolina. I don't think we get enough credit mm-hmm. that, like, we're not one of those states that started looking for bamboo on our ballots. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we are a state that has tried to actually talk about the real policy issues that are facing North Carolina. We've been focused on tax reform, about changing our energy environment, about making sure that we have a solid base for our economy, that we're training a labor force that's appropriate for the people that are here and the people that we want to come to build businesses here. So we've been so busy focused on the things that actually matter to governing a state, we haven't gotten as tied up into D.C. politics. And I think that that's served the Republican Party and the brand of North Carolina Republican Party well. And I hope that we continue in that same direction. One of those issues that you've been working on, especially over in the Senate, and you've been a part of this, is really some systemic changes to how we do judicial reform. In fact, a lobbyist for the ACLU stands up in committee and says that the North Carolina Senate has put forward some of the most progressive, I'm putting air quotes around that, progressive agenda that he's worked on. It was an honor, actually, to work on that bill. You know, as a legislative staffer, we don't... This is Senate Bill 300. Senate Bill 300. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't take curtain calls. We don't press the green or red button. We don't deserve credit for the things that happen. Um, it's our job to make the people we work sure. for look good. Um, and it's not hard to make Danny Britt look good, as you know. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, he, he we kind of had a conversation before the session began. He said, well... You know, we worked on some criminal justice reform legislation the session before. He said, I kind of want to go bigger this time. What, what, what is possible? So I 
just came up with every single idea that was out there. I mean, the attorney general had put forward some ideas, the governor had, uh, the house had a special committee, the chiefs of police, the sheriffs, they all had their own ideas about what we could do. And we just tried to look at, well, what has the most broad-based support and how can we start there? And once we had a starting point, it was just Danny Britt spending hours and hours and hours talking to every stakeholder and massaging that bill to the point that we could get it across the finish line with, I think it was a unanimous vote in mm -hmm. both chambers. I mean, mm -hmm. just an incredible accomplishment that is going to really do something that I think is important. Not only we're not putting as many people in prison, so we're saving money that way, we're also giving people a second chance because once they've committed a crime but and they've got off on the wrong path, but if they can get back to being a productive member of society, then we can redeem that. You know, mm -hmm. and I think that that's really important for conservatives and Christian conservatives, which I still consider myself one, although most of them wouldn't consider me one, mm -hmm. um, that that way of using law to redeem people is really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and to make sure that they don't have barriers to work and housing is the only way they're going to get back on the path of righteousness. So I think Brian mentioned this earlier when talking about your Twitter, but you are involved in local politics as well. Can you talk about how you got started into Raleigh politics and what your level of engagement is? Yeah, so when I first moved to Raleigh, uh, one of the first things I did is I signed up to coach a Little League basketball team, 11 and 12 year olds. I actually still coach that team today. Um, and when I started getting involved with the city that way, I thought, you know, there's a web of city politics and city organizations that exist here too. And I don't have any expertise in it because I don't work there. But I thought, well, it's important for me to also be an engaged citizen on the city level. So I started looking at what our council was doing and, you know, we've had ups and downs in Raleigh. Um, eventually, one issue that really came to the fore was short-term rentals and what to do with, like, Airbnbs. Um, and so I uh, met a friend who, set, who was an Airbnb owner. They were going to set up a city committee to look at what the city should do about it. Um, he asked if I would serve on the committee. I decided to serve on the committee. Uh, then we got to the first meeting, and they said, does anybody want to be chair of the committee? And I was like, nobody raised their hand. I said, oh. Okay, I'll raise my hand and then they elected me to be the chair because I guess nobody else in the room knew who I was. <laughs> so then uh, we made a recommendation and the city council threw it in the garbage wow. um, and just said, you know, you spent months. We literally spent from January to May meeting and get paid or one per diem or anything like that. We're just volunteers. Um, we sat around the table. We had some people who were harshly, harshly anti really anything that was involved change. And then we had people who were trying to come up with a solution. We ended up getting most of the people in the room to the same place. But it just didn't carry any weight. And it became clear that they were just kicking the can down the road and wanted to blame citizens for their inaction. Um, that angered me. So I decided to start a political action committee. Um, and I raised some money. And I started spending money on Facebook. Uh, whether or not that was effective or helped, I'm not sure. But it did teach me how to be involved in local politics in a productive way. And that even one person if they have a good strategy of how they want to brand themselves and what they want to talk about, can make a difference. And so in the next election, what I kind of realized is it wasn't just about short-term rentals. It was about something much broader, which is housing in general, and how we weren't building enough housing. That was causing all kinds of social ills and problems, not only homelessness, but even people that were trying to buy their first house were getting priced out of the market because prices were increasing because mm -hmm. we had artificial constraint on supply. So we needed to change what that looked like, and so I started to advocate for building more housing in general and more different types of housing. Mm. Um, apartments, 
duplexes, triplexes, townhouses, all the rest of it. So that no matter where you are in the market, how much money you have, you can get into a house if that's what you want to do. And if you want to rent, you should have that ability too. So that's what I started advocating for. And, and the News Observer ended up calling the Yimby issue, the housing issue, one of the top six issues in the last uh, city council election. And that was just really gratifying to be a part of that. We elected, I think, a really great council who has done a good work this year that kind of got paused by the pandemic on a lot of those issues, but we still got a long way to go. There was talk years ago that maybe you would run for office here at the local level. I think you put some stuff out saying that you were not running, but is that a possibility for you? Uh, well, hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't rule it out, but I'm not sure. I've got a three-year-old, almost three-year-old daughter at home. I'm not sure necessarily right now is the time for me to jump into local politics, but it is something that long-term I would, I would be interested in if, if the right opportunity arose and I thought that I could make a difference on the council. And I, I think there are ways that we're getting things wrong. I mean, I think we've got to get our city back to normal. Yeah. Um, I think that we had probably these windows or at least windows yeah. close by boarded up for weeks yeah. and weeks and weeks. Yeah. And it's done psychological damage, I think, to us that's lasting. It has. Um, and I think we need to turn the page on that and decide what kind of city we want to be and start working toward getting there. And I'm hopeful that the people who run present the type of vision that will uh, inspire us. So let's talk about the session that just concluded in November. Can you talk a little bit about the length of the session and what are you doing now in the interim? Because now we have the new session that's coming up. We've got some redistricting stuff out there. So the legislature does do quite a bit of oversight. Mm -hmm. um, I work kind of most specifically on justice and public safety, safety oversight and the revenue law study committee. So we get to, you know, the really sexy topics of <laughs> finance and taxes. But, you know, I work with Paul Newton pretty closely. He's got a lot of ideas about what he wants to do with taxes, and he doesn't take a lot of time off. Mm. So he's already said, hey, I'm not done with tax reform, so okay. let's continue, um, and let's figure out what we need to study in the interim. Um, so, that you know, you kind of work on some of that. But, I mean, just from a personal standpoint, it does – it strains the people who work at the General Assembly yeah. as much as it – well, maybe not as much as it does the legislators, particularly those from way out west or way out east. Um, but – you know, work until 8, 9 o'clock every Monday night, being there, you know, can be 40, 50, 60 hours a week, depending on what we're working on at the time. And doing that for 12 months, not being able to plan really a family vacation, like, it, it strains people. And uh, we're lucky to retain the people who stay there. Um, just was at a legislative breakfast this morning where uh, during the holidays we typically have, it's a tradition for the pro tem staff and the speaker staff to serve everybody in the General Assembly a breakfast okay. to give the cafeteria workers the morning to, to rest and be off. Um, so we did that this morning. The people that worked at the General Assembly for 40 years that were celebrating their 40-year anniversary, wow. we're just tremendously blessed and lucky in this state to have people who have a real passion for public service, who work for the General Assembly, who are on central staff or on one of the uh, speaker or pro tem staff as well. But the people that can be retained and stay uh, it's just invaluable to the legislators who come in who may serve two, three terms, and then they turn over. And so mm -hmm. now a new person comes in, and they need guidance, and they need kind of somebody to tell, like show them the ropes. Um, and sometimes it's people who work there who can kind of help uh, orient them once they, once they come in. Can you tell us what is your favorite part of your job? My favorite part of my job, well, they're, they're I, I, okay, two parts. Right. One. I uh, really like to pass legislation. I mean, I'm a person who really wants to make progress and have something to, to show for it. Like, 
I don't really like. I'm not a very good like builder of things, but like if my wife like orders a cabinet and it has to be put together and I put it together, I like feel like a real man, like, <laughs> really accomplished something because there's this tangible thing I made. And, yeah, yeah, I use the instructions and it really there's probably a screw missing or something, but I did this, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So I like I like getting the product of it and seeing it in action. Um, but then you know I like I like to argue. I didn't go to law school for no reason. So I mean, okay. like I like to try to win arguments, and I like to test my ideas against the best and the smartest and brightest people on the other side. And there are a lot of bright people on the other side. Um, and typically, I have I have a lot of respect for them. If you're smart, you know why you're there, and you have leadership skills. You're going to succeed as a member of the General Assembly. And I always have respect for people on the other side or on our side who have those three things. Is there a particular bill that when you think it made it into law, do you have a favorite? The criminal justice reform bill is definitely one that I am proud to have worked on. Senate Bill um, 300. Senate Bill yeah. 300, yeah. And uh, think that it's really going to make a difference, mm-hmm. and I feel good about that. I'm mm-hmm. proud of it. Um, one of my favorites, though, is this tax reform bill that we just passed in the budget because I think it's going to lead to tremendous economic progress in North Carolina, continue to help us uh, compete for jobs and opportunity and when people come here that they're going to find that uh, North Carolina is a place they can get ahead Mm -hmm. and and really that's the most important thing we can have in an economy. What is the biggest misconception you think people have about Senator Berger? Well they think he's evil (laughs) (laughs) Um, and they may may think that he's mean um, which is the absolute opposite of who he is as a person. I was telling people the other day, I've worked for Senator Burr for 12 years. I've seen him angry twice. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is a man who, of great leadership skills, great personal integrity, and great self-control. Were those times when he read your tweets? <laughs> <laughs> it could have been. <laughs> if you could fix one thing in our politics today, it's done, what would it be? All right, so I've thought about this a lot. Okay. Because you ask this to a lot of people, and I think they've had a lot of good answers. So I'm like, how can I have the best one? (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. I think think the biggest problem that we're facing is political polarization. And I think there are two fundamental causes of that that we could fix, that we could help solve that I think would make that better. One is housing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason I say housing, which may seem somewhat counterintuitive, is we don't live together. We don't build housing next to each other for people of different socioeconomic status of different backgrounds, people that look different from each other. We, we are having uh, what's called the great sort, where people all of the same ideology are moving into the same neighborhoods, the same cities, the same parts of town, and it's dividing us in such a way that we don't encounter people we disagree with on a regular basis. And we have a saying at my church that prejudice cannot survive proximity. And we're not in proximity, so we can still be prejudiced against one one another. So if we could fix the housing problem, which also is an issue of generational wealth, whereas people get along get will get along better when they can get ahead better, mm-hmm. um, and and that's also related to a breakdown of our institutions. People don't join things anymore. Like I said, I coach a basketball team. When we first started coaching, we would have eight teams of ten players. This year we have four teams of nine players. And part of that's the pandemic related, people getting still getting over that. But it's just we, we're not joining things anymore. People aren't as likely to go to church, and are not likely to join a social organization. Um, when you do that, and you do that in such a way that you meet people who you wouldn't normally meet in your everyday life, um, who may come from a different background or a different perspective, I think that kind of uh, 
it whittles the edges mm-hmm. of our political disagreements so that we don't define ourselves just as political beings, but as human beings who have some social relation to each other and some obligation to one another. So I think if we could tackle those two root causes, we could, we could help move the ball on political polarization. Well, Brent Woodcox, we appreciate everything that you do for the Senate. We appreciate everything you do for the city of Raleigh and North Carolina politics. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. So I was talking to a Democratic legislator this week. He just wanted to know who was going to be on the podcast. And I said, Brent Woodcox. And he said, he doesn't do politics better. And I said, are you sure? You got to follow him on Twitter. He's like, I know, I know. I'm really just kind of jealous because they really have talented staff over on the Republican side, House and Senate. I think that speaks volumes for Brent. And, you know, if you follow him on Twitter, if you're a Republican, he really does a great job of messaging that Republican agenda. But if you're also a Republican, you might hear some things you don't want to hear, whether you agree with him or disagree with Brent. He is a talented, talented man. Tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. So this week's tweet of the week comes from Charlie Jeter, former representative Charlie Jeter. He's at C.R. Jeter Jr. on Twitter, and he does an annual holiday edugram. This is a 12-part tweet, but we are only going to read one of them. I am going to read the one that says he talks about Governor Cooper for a bit. And he's using the Twas the Night Before Christmas poem, right? Yeah. So the one that we'll be highlighting says, In laying a finger for the DGA's hope and gave a nod to 2024 without saying nope, Jeff Jackson stopped by to ponder his thoughts to consider what happens when things go afraught. <laughs> very Christmassy, very appropriate. Check it out on Twitter. 12? He did 12 kind of subtweets on that? Maybe I should do the next one too because it's the last one. Go ahead. The next one after that says Jackson sprang to his sleigh as his team gave a whistle. If I drop out now, can 2032 be considered? But Cooper laughed as he drove out of sight. Merry Christmas to all. I'm off to see Jim. Good night. <laughs> uh, that's good. Yes, that was a 12-part tweet series. Way to go, Representative Jeter. Good job. Sky, this is our 42nd episode of the Do Politics Better podcast. The 42nd time that folks have gotten to listen to us just banter to each other. <laughs> <laughs> so to all North Carolinians, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, next week will be our 43rd. We will have one more episode. We're going to do a special edition wrap-up episode. We have some special guests that are coming on. 
We have Senators Jim Perry and Senator Kirk Devier on the podcast, and they're going to just take a look back at the General Assembly session this year. And then we are joined with our colleague, Christy Jones, and we kind of talk about Christmas traditions, things that we saw this year, and what we're looking forward to in 2022. Then we have really some great guests lined up in January. You know, we thought for a while that they're going to go home and we're not going to see them again until the spring. If there's really one good thing about them coming back in January is that we're going to have legislators in and out of here. And of course, we're going to have some non-legislative guests because I think folks like Brent Woodcox and other staffers really do help you understand that process down at the General Assembly and how to get things done. Have you gotten everything done for next week? I have all of my gifts ordered. I'm ready to go. Are you? No. Yeah, that's the difference in you and me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get my shopping done this week, and, and I'll be ready for Christmas. I usually am. Yeah, you're more of a last-minute type of guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I do have some gifts. I got a gift for you. It's already come. I just gotta, I, I just don't know if it's complete. When I get... Any gift delivered to my house, I immediately wrap it. And this year I'm doing a new thing where I have those little compliment cards that are like, they're kind of complimenty, kind of insulty. They're funny though. And each gift I put a little compliment on for that person. So I just thought it would be a little fun addition to your gift. Well, I'm looking forward to next week. I have a feeling that even though it's a shortened week, even though it's a holiday week, It sounds like anything could happen, right? We could have breaking news on Monday or Tuesday. Anything could happen on any day in North Carolina politics. As you take this last weekend before Christmas to prepare for the holidays, if you celebrate Christmas, to buy some gifts for your loved ones, and you're out and about and someone grabs whatever you were trying to buy and you want to be angry with them, just remember the Christmas spirit and remember to do politics better. I had food in my teeth this entire time, and you didn't tell me. I didn't <laughs> feel see it. it. I didn't see I, it. Now I got it. Oh, now I just put it back in my teeth. <laughs>